He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Um, my father built trains at Ellington Railway Workshops um, when we still did that in our country. And my mother was a cleaner and that was my first job too. Actually at the age of 15 I started cleaning in the history department at the University of Canterbury. So my, my, my standing joke is I went to university at the age of 15, which is technically true but I wasn't a student. From a cleaner to graduating first class with a BA in history at that same university. Vincent O'Malley, author and academic. For the last two decades, O'Malley has worked as a historian and contributed to the research of various Waipangi tribunal claims. He co-founded Wellington-based research consultancy History Works and over the years has published books that centre on the relationship between Māori and the Crown. He wrote 2016's The Great War for New Zealand, Waikato, 1800-2000 and he co-authored The Beating Heart, a political and socio-economic history of Te Arawa. And in 2012, he published The Meeting Place, Māori and Pākehā Encounters, 1642-1840. E ngā mana, e ngā reo, tahuti mai ki tēnei hōtaka e kia nei, ko te ahikā. Ko Justine Maria Hou e mihi kawatu kia tātou katoa. This is Te Ahikā on RNZ. I'm Justine Murray. The New Zealand Land Wars is not taught as part of the country's education curriculum. Vincent O'Malley talks about one of his former teachers describing the country's history as boring, so he simply decided not to teach it. O'Malley, however, would go on to build a career as a professional historian. Tonight, we join him and his presentation, recorded at a recent New Zealand Land War Symposium hosted by Te Whare Wānanga o Awanuiārangi and Whakatāne. Uh, ina mana, ina reo, ina iwi o tomotu, tēnā koutou, uh, tēnā koutou e te whanau o Te Whare Wānanga o Awanuiārangi, uh, i hui hui mai nei. Uh, ko te kopapa o tēnei kōrero, me maumahara tātou, me maumahara nga pākanga o Aotearoa, me maumahara uh, te reri pākihā. So, my talk this afternoon is following very much a similar theme. Um, I, I want to open by talking about how I discovered New Zealand history, because to me that sort of speaks to a wider kind of ignorance about this. Um, and I'm, I'm talking um, to my book, The Great War for New Zealand, which was published... Um, in 2016 and illustrating some of the themes from that work which people, a lot of people don't know about. To me it's a national disgrace that more New Zealanders don't get the opportunity to learn about the wars fought here. So that, this, is, this is something I've been talking about for years now. So anyway, how did I, how did I discover New Zealand history? Well, um, I grew up in a really big working class Irish Catholic family in Christchurch. I was the ninth of nine kids. Um, my father built trains at Addington Railway workshops um, when we still did that in our country. But at high school, I had a really good history teacher. He, you know, he, he was fantastic, really enthusiastic and all that. But he thought nothing of interest had ever happened in New Zealand. He said it was boring, so he just point blank refused to teach us any New Zealand history. And I remember asking about this one day, Sir, why don't we learn any New Zealand, New Zealand history? And he just said, it's boring, forget it, forget it, kid, move on. So, we, you know, we did nothing but European history, basically. We did the Russian Revolution, the English Civil War, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And I loved it. You know, I had a passion for history. That was my thing. So I, I studied all that. I went to university, enrolled in a whole bunch of European history courses because that was all that I knew. Um, and so I continued to be unaware of New Zealand history. It was only... Um, I was dropping out of something else. I think it was economics, actually, after a few weeks. And I was looking for an easy filler course, and the student magazine said New Zealand history was a good filler course. And I thought, well, it would be boring. After all, nothing happened in here. My old teacher <laughs> told me that. But it's a good filler course, so I'll do it. So I did it, and I was blown away. And, you know, I thought, why did I not learn this history at school? The idea that nothing of interest ever happened in this, co- in this country couldn't be further from the truth. So um, the idea that I'd end up a, a professional historian was, was far from, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew that I had a love for history and that's what I wanted to study at university and I had the luxury of being able to do that. In 1993, Vincent O'Malley was offered a three-month job in Wellington researching treaty claims. It's a role he's had for the last 25 years. In 2006, the Waitangi Tribunal commissioned him to write about the history of Te Rohe Pōtai. His book is a hefty read at 700 pages long and two and a half kilos in weight. When he began researching the reports about the aftermath of Raupatu or land confiscation, the deeper he delved into the history of the land wars, he uncovered more about the impact of British imperialism. And one of the things I think about the claims process is mostly it's just iwi talking to the government, talking to the Crown. And other New Zealanders aren't part of that conversation. And often they have no idea of the history behind the claims, the, the history of the grievances, partly because they were never taught it in schools. Imagine if they were, that the groundswell of sympathy and, and, and empathy and understanding about the significance of claims that we might have. And so that's why um, you know, I spend a lot of my time um, trying to write up the, the, the stuff that comes through the claims process to, to publish it whether it's in books or I've got a blog or on social media and so on, just to share this stuff with as many people as possible because they don't get the opportunity to learn this history. And one of the big arguments in my book is that this isn't just a, you know, a Tainui book, a work of Māori history, as some people would describe it. I think the Waikato War is something that all New Zealanders should know something about because it had profound consequences for the entire country. It's not a small regional story, um, but one of, I think, of national, even international significance, given the number of British troops who were involved here. This is an important part of British imperial history. So this, this is a, a conflict of world significance. So in 1865, Wurumu Tamihana, a um, wonderful man that all New Zealanders should know more about, by the way, he wrote that when it came to the time of the murder at Rangiafia, then I knew for the first time that this was a great war for New Zealand. And it's Wurumi Tamihana's statement in this petition in 1865 after the Waikato War that's the basis for the title of my book. The Great War for New Zealand is the first book-length overview on the Waikato War to be published since 1879. Imagine that. This is, this is what I would say is the defining conflict in New Zealand history. But there hasn't been a book on it since 1879. There have been what academics would call monographs on the role of steamers in the war or the Great South Road and so on, but not an overview of the conflict as a whole, its significance, its origins, its aftermath. And I think for a, a conflict that had a profound influence on the course of New Zealand history, it seems as a nation we've gone out of a way to forget this stuff, as if it never happened. We, we don't want to know this history. And Wurumu Tamihana's statement really sums up um, the central argument, the thesis of my book, 
which is that this was the defining conflict in New Zealand history. It didn't take place on the Western Front or Gallipoli. It took place right here. And I think, as I said, it's a history that many Pākehā had preferred to ignore over the years. Well, Tainui and many other iwi, and we heard this morning of the Tuhoi connections and so on, they've never forgotten this. They've never been able to forget this. My, my argument, what I, what I tell all of the groups that I talk to, is it's time as a nation that we, we, we remember this history. We must remember this history. And a mature nation, I think, takes ownership of its history. It doesn't just choose pick out the good bits to remember. You've also got to acknowledge the bad stuff from your past as well. That's part of us as well. And the Waikato War features some of the darkest episodes in New Zealand history. This was, what I'd argue, a, a deliberate war of conquest started by the Crown, relying on fabricated evidence of a supposed Kingitanga threat to Europeans. And it saw a professional standing army belonging to the world's sole superpower at the time, which Britain was in the mid-19th century, unleashed on a civilian population. That, and that civilian population was heavily outnumbered. They didn't have the firepower or technology that was available to the British. You know, the British had armour-plated steamers and Māori had wooden canoes. This is what uh, military historians call asymmetrical warfare, one-sided warfare. Māori are outnumbered four to one. After the war, Europeans tried to depict this war as one marked by mutual chivalry and bravery. But actually there was nothing noble or glorious about any of this. And I think it's time as a nation that we acknowledge that history and confront the reality of what took place. This might be an uncomfortable history for some, but I think it's the truth that Pākehā can no longer run from. And I think owning our past requires guts and maturity. I wouldn't say it's an easy thing to do, but it is an essential step in the development of our nation. And actually, as I say in the book as well, if we look closely enough, we can find some uplifting aspects of the story. It's a very grim story, but some of the, you know, some of the, the, the things that inspired me from this, one of them is actually the, the principled idealism and bicultural vision of Wadamu Tamihana, a wonderful person, wonderful, wonderful figure. Um, Rauri Maniapoto, often uh, you know, singled out as the, the, the colonialist's favourite bogeyman, but actually he insisted on fighting fairly and honourably, even under really horrendous circumstances, and, and that his story also needs to be acknowledged and understood. And, and even um, the sheer bravery of those few Pākehā who spoke out against the injustice of the war at the time, and this is at a time when most settlers are baying for Māori blood, you know, it took real courage and conviction on their part. Imagine it. They're, they're a tiny minority of the settler community, but they're saying this is wrong, this shouldn't happen. And, and those voices are ones that we need to hear as well. You know, Māori poverty today makes little sense without an understanding of the historical context. And if you don't have that, then you get people resorting to deficit theories. They blame Māori themselves for their current day predicament. The reality is that the Waikato War and the other New Zealand wars destroyed a flourishing Māori economy. It's not widely known. Through the 1840s and 1850s, Māori are the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy. Most of New Zealand's export income is coming from Māori. But the war changes that, you know, and sweeping and indiscriminate land confiscations pushed generations of Tainui and other Māori people into landlessness and poverty. And I think the, the other really critical thing is this also marks a point at which the Treaty of Waitangi is thrown out the window for at least the next century or more. So after the, after the 1860s, the Crown doesn't even pay lip service to honouring the treaty. And it's not until you know, maybe the 1970s when you start to get serious discussions about that again. And that's felt in really significant ways, including the establishment of the Native Land Court to strip Māori of even more of their lands, and a native, a native school system designed to further the Crown's assimilationist agenda. 
And it's, it's no coincidence that those two things follow on very quickly. Um, you know, the Waikato War finishes in 1864 within a year of that the Native Land Court is established. Two years later, the Native school system is set up. Those things would not have been possible in the 1840s or 1850s because the, the Crown wasn't in a position to impose its will on Māori. By the mid-1860s, it felt that it was able to do so. So it, it's the start of this, this period where the Crown is much more uncompromising in its approach to these issues. And I think the, the effects of these things can, can still be felt in multiple ways today, whether it's in socioeconomic statistics or in the perilous state of Tabao Māori. And yet, I think for all of Governor Gray and General Cameron's efforts, um, the Kingi Tanga wasn't destroyed in the, in the Waikato War. It endures to this day. And that wasn't actually in the Crown's plan. The Crown set out to destroy this movement. They failed in that. So some people have said to me, you know, we should acknowledge the war as a time of, of great pain and suffering. But we should, we should also acknowledge the fact that just surviving under these circumstances is, is remarkable, actually. And um, one, of, one of my Tainui friends, when he read the book, he, he said he read this as a, as a uh, survival narrative. We're still here. And the book also set, you know, tries to set, uh, set to rest some of these old myths. And one of them was that Governor Gray, when he was assembling what I call his dodgy dossier, um, of supposed evidence justifying the Crown's invasion of Waikato in 1863. Well, he claimed that, that Tainui were intent on attacking the settlers of Auckland. And that's something that uh, some of the anti-treatyists, as we call them, still power today. They're, they're seeking to stir up hatred and division and so on. But the book shows that the, this uh, supposed plot um, that was used to justify this, this war of, of conquest and invasion, you know, was, was a complete lie, basically. Um, for, you know, for example, Rayway Maniapoto was the supposed ringleader of this, this imminent attack on Auckland. He was in Taupo at the time of the invasion, which is the wrong place to be if you're going to attack Auckland, surely. He's gone in the wrong direction. He's gone south, not north. And Auckland was, was the key market, the key outlet for Tainui produce. Why would, you, why, did, why would you destroy your own economy? And so that's why, after the war, Wudu and Tamihana made repeated petitions, sent repeated petitions to Parliament through 1865 and 1866. And he, the thing he asked for was an independent inquiry into the war. Who'd been responsible for it? You know, he, he asked for, for somebody to come in and examine the conduct of the Crown and Māori. But I think today, we actually need those facts out in daylight. It's time for the full and unblemished history um, of the Waikato War, and indeed other New Zealand wars, to be taught in schools. You know, our kids need to learn this stuff. It's as simple as that. And I think without dialogue, there can't be reconciliation. As a nation, we need to have a conversation about the wars fought here. And the purpose of remembering them isn't to sow discord or division, but actually to bind us together as a nation that can honestly front up to our own past. You know, we commemorate World War I on a grand scale because it provides sort of ready opportunities to rally around the flag and we all feel... Um, warm, fuzzy feelings of patriotism and so on. And politicians love nothing better than to be seen at Gallipoli. But, um, you know, as Takenahi said, you know, Rangiriri, the 150th anniversary a few years ago, only one MP there out of the... The entire parliament was invited. One out of 120 accepted that invitation. And this, this is one of the, you know, the, the biggest, uh, most important conflicts that took place on their shores. You know, some, see, some people have said that it's best... It's best to forget these conflicts for here. We should just let sleeping dogs lie, said one commentator. Well, I, I beg to differ on that. I, I think these are stories that need to be told, they need to be heard, 
if we're to move, move together as a nation. Um, as the Waitangi Tribune was said, and I, I like this quote, while only one side remembers the suffering of the past, dialogue will always be difficult. One side commences the dialogue with anger and the other side has no idea why. Reconciliation cannot be achieved by this means. And so I think it's time for New Zealanders to learn about this history that Tainui and other iwi have carried alone for so many generations. It's time to learn about the Great War for New Zealand. Pōtātou Te Whiro Whiro agreed to become Māori King in 1857. Here, O'Malley talks about his work in Auckland to assist the settlers in 1845. Te Whiro Whiro, during the Northern War with Honeheke, had, had um, declared his willingness to um, personally defend the settlers of Auckland. And he declared Auckland um, the hem of his cloak, which made it part of his personal tapu. And really, there couldn't have been any greater guarantee of the well-being of Auckland than Te Whiro Whiro, one of the greatest rangatira in the land, declaring it part of his own tapu. And so the, the cottage that the government built for him was recognition of just how reliant the settlers were. And people don't know this history. Thousands of people probably go to Auckland Museum every day would have no idea that, that you know, the first Māori king lived, there, lived right, right there, the government built a cottage for him because they were so reliant on this rangatira. You know, the treaty was signed in 1840, but Contrary to the popular myth, New Zealand wasn't magically transformed overnight into a country, a colony ruled from the centre. Most Māori communities like Tainui governed their own affairs as they always had, and they expected to do so. That's what the treaty promised them. But the, the treaty introduced a new, a new player to the scene in the form of the Crown, and it signals the start of a period of mass British migration to New Zealand. So by 1858, Māori are outnumbered in their own country for the first time. And these new settlers aren't willing to play second fiddle to a bunch of so-called natives. So the seeds of disharmony are there from the start, especially as Māori continue to assert their, their right, their expectation of rangatira tanga, and settlers demand self-rule and un- unimpeded access to Māori lands. 1852, there's a new constitution granted for New Zealand, New Zealand Constitution Act, and it sets up the forerunner to today's parliament. But... Because the right to vote is based on a European form of, of uh, property ownership, very, very few Māori are entitled to vote. So basically this is an all-Pākehā parliament that Māori have no say in. And unsurprisingly, that settler parliament and the settler government is entirely hostile to Māori interests. So one of the ways that, that Māori respond to this threat in the 1850s of huge numbers of, of incoming migrants, this hostile parliament that's established and their exclusion... Um, from that parliament and so on, is to look for new ways to unite as Māori, which is quite a radical idea at the time. So the king tanga that that says to Whiru raised up as the first king in 1858 is one response. Wadamid Tamihana describes Queen Victoria around this time as a fence for us all, Māori and Pākehā, and he denies that the Kingitanga is, is something that's incompatible with the Crown's authority. So the Kingitanga figures, you know, they scratched their heads at the idea that they'd established something that's seen as hostile to the Crown. They thought it, it was um, something that was a compliment to the Crown because the idea for this had come out of people like um, Tamihana Taropaha and others who'd gone to England, met with Queen Victoria. But the idea that um, this is a threat to the Crown's authority, that it's a hostile institution, that it needs to be destroyed basically becomes official crown policy and that paves the way for the invasion of Waikato in July 1863. So the thing is, why don't more people know about this history? You know, this is an incredible history. I've just just given you a very, very brief description of it here. 
But, you know, every time, you know, you see a story on, appear on stuff where they, they still allow comments that mentions Māori, you can see the ignorance in, in those stories. You know, entire generations of New Zealanders have been denied access to the history of this country. What's that all about? Well, one thing is we've got what's called a high autonomy curriculum. And basically that means that individual schools get to choose what they teach. And there's a set of very broad achievement objectives, um, and that's really the only framework. Beyond that, it's up to the schools. They, they can do whatever they like. There's no requirement to teach any New Zealand history, let alone New Zealand Wars history. Um, the only part of that, as Tamsin said, is that um, there's a year 10 achievement objective around the treaty. Um, but that's it the total um, content in terms of New Zealand history. So currently, um, only around 20% of students choose history as an NCA option from year 11 onwards. So even if every single one of those 20% uh, studied the New Zealand wars, which is far, far from the case, you still have four out of five students who left school with no understanding of this history at all, no exposure to it. And, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in, on the history curriculum in schools. That, that's Tamsin's area. Just somebody who thinks that a basic knowledge of the history of one's own country is an outcome that any half-decent education system around the world should deliver. The, the cynic in me suggests that maybe they don't actually want to know the answer because it would confirm that the current system is failing our kids. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> what we don't know won't hurt us. Last year, when I was um, a bit bored, I decided to do my, completely, my own completely unscientific poll. So, so I put up a poll on Twitter... Um, which I spend way too much time on. And I said, uh, my question was, did you learn about New Zealand Wars at school? And there's quite a phenomenal response. 1,500 people in three days responded to the poll. And a lot of them left detailed comments about their, their personal experiences of learning or not learning about New Zealand Wars at school. Um, and they were really thoughtful, they were frank. And I thought, sometimes they were heartwarming, other times they were really depressing, really sad to, to read some of the comments about people who'd wished they'd learnt this stuff and, you know, had come to it later in life. This was, this was just Twitter, social media. It wasn't a scientific survey at all. If it was a proper poll, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be getting data about the ages, ethnicities, the regions that people lived in and so on. First thing is some people had really incredible learning experiences. Um, and a lot of people mentioned teachers who were inspirational, sometimes even really ahead of their times. Um, and a common theme amongst these respondents was the power of visits to the sites where these conflicts took place, just how incredibly important that was to go there, to stand on that whenua, and to learn about their history. And that, that's, that was a sentiment that was shared by the students at Otterahonga College, who it was only after they went to Araka and Rangiafia that they discovered this history and the power of that history, and it moved them to do something about it. So visiting the sites is incredibly uh, important. 61% um, of the respondents in the poll said they learned nothing at all about New Zealand Wars at school. Another 6% said that, said that they didn't know what the term New Zealand Wars meant. Um, I think maybe we should let young, young people take the lead on this. They, they seem to have a, a better sense of the kind of country that they want to live in, and it's one that doesn't turn its back on, the, on its own past. And so finally, I, I talked before about my, um, my old history teacher, and I was giving a presentation at Hamilton last year, New Zealand History Teachers Association, and, and after my talk, I, I, I sort of mentioned that, that anecdote as well, and somebody came up to me and said, oh, hi, do you remember me? Oh, I'm your old history teacher. And, and uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really in the gutters now. But he said, no, you're completely right. I, you know, when, when I was teaching you, I did have the view that New Zealand history was boring. I, I refused to teach it. He told me that what happened is years later, he, he moved to an area where 
most of the students at the school were Māori, and, and he thought it's, it's just crazy to be teaching them Tudor and Stuart history when there's all this history right around them, um, their own history that they're not aware of. So since then he became a, a huge um, advocate for teaching New Zealand history because I, I never imagined that, that, that somebody who thought New Zealand history would be boring would turn up at a New Zealand history teacher's <laughs> conference. So I thought it was safe to tell that story, but apparently not. So to me that was, um, that was inspirational. It was wonderful that, that you know, because he, he himself was a victim of the education system. He was no doubt taught by people who told him it was boring, forget about it. So we have to kind of break that chain, and I think we're starting to do that now. Kia ora, historian, author Vincent O'Malley. That was recorded at a recent New Zealand Land War Symposium, Te Pūtake o Te Riri. Koe rā tā tātou nei wahanga mō tēnei wā. E riri ana nā taimihi kia tātou katoa. You can, of course, subscribe to our podcast, or to get in touch, you can send an email to tiahika at rnz.co.nz. Mai te whānau a tiahika kia tātou katoa. Hei kōna mai. Okay.